Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and today we're talking about one of the most important abductees in our series, Whitley Strieber. At this point in our series, Whitley Strieber is one person who has probably shaped this phenomenon almost as much as Hopkins and Jacobs has, uh, though he did it with a singular image. The cover to Whitley's first book, about his abduction experiences, communion, struck a chord with people, so much so that they wrote hundreds of letters describing interactions with the same kinds of beings, which came to be known as the Greys. Realistically, the idea, the image of the Grey, comes from the cover of, of Whitley's first book about his experiences and his uh, philosophies on uh, the visitors, as he calls them. Um, and... Um, yeah, let's uh, let's get into just who this Mr. Strieber is. Whitley was born June 13th, 1945 in San Antonio, Texas. His father, Carl, was a prominent lawyer with a successful uh, investments uh, in like oil and gas. Uh, his mother, Mary, was the daughter of H.P. Drought, owner of a large construction company and staunch supporter of the Catholic Church in San Antonio. He grew up in the upper middle class suburbs of Terrell Hills. Uh, his mother, Mary, recalls, quote, Whitley was very smart, terrifically high IQ and very imaginative. He was always interested in literature and was and has wanted to write since the age of nine. End quote. Uh, she remembers uh, he was very popular as a kid because he had such a terrific imagination. Everybody came over to play with Whitley because he always had something that they could do. He's described as an adventurous, overly sensitive boy. I never saw a kid cry like Whitley. He'd cry at everything in sight. Uh, according to Whitley, he was uh, reading Plato, Descartes, and Nietzsche when he was 11 years old. So Whitley is a genius IQ just here doing this shit. Um, he was fascinated by rockets, so much so that he and his friends formed a club for their hobby and were adopted by scientists from the Southwest Research Institute, a laboratory complex in San Antonio. Their activities caught the attention of San Antonio Express columnist Paul Thompson, who wrote an article about the boys in the uh, supposed November 18th, 1957 edition of the Express, uh, which got them a fair amount of media attention. Now, we have checked into this particular edition of the express and there's no mention whatsoever of this uh our researcher for this series jeff uh give it up for jeff because jeff researched this entire series if it wasn't for jeff we wouldn't be talking about whitley streber right here and right now but uh, he looked at a bunch of editions of the express but could not find the article so Maybe um, the the person that uh, we're quoting here, Ed, uh, Ed Conroy, was the one that uh, allegedly published uh, about this in his book, Report on Communion. But uh, yeah, we just couldn't find it. 
Uh, while he claims having no interest in aliens and flying saucers when he was a kid, uh, friends remember otherwise. According to Lynette Glasscock, the mother of his best friend, Albert, Streber was frightened of spacemen as a boy. She recounts, they were crazy about spaceships, aliens, and the whole idea of space travel. In fact, I remember having to take Whitley home in the middle of the night because he was afraid spacemen were going to come and get him. Interestingly enough, his mother doesn't recall him being interested in UFOs when he was a boy. However, she recalls an incident where Albert painted him green like one of those little green men. So, you know, there's kind of um, uh, conflicting reports here, but um, a friend remembers you, Whitley, were really a little scary. You talked about aliens all the time. Uh, a childhood friend recounts how uh, when they were both around 13 years old, Whitley told him that spacemen taught him how to build an anti-gravity device with electromagnets taken from old motors. When Streber tested the device, it made a buzzing sound, caused the lights in the house to dim and glow orange red and destroyed itself, causing many light bulbs in the house to explode. He recalls that Whitley called him that night anxious because he was afraid the spacemen were mad because he disturbed their power field. Whitley didn't recall many of his childhood experiences with the quote unquote visitors uh, until much later, but there were a few things that kind of stuck out that are worth mentioning. When he was two, he remembers seeing a round object hanging in the sky and a group of big gray monkeys coming up across the hillside from his grandmother's house like the uh the monkey connection is interesting especially when you think of the uh terry lovelace abduction and his quote-unquote monkey men in 1956 he recalls an incident where he and a friend of of his witnessed a giant fireball shoot across the sky followed by a black sedan racing down the street in the direction it had fallen he remembers flying over the roofs of the neighborhood in some kind of rubber raft at night and waking up with uh, bits of grass and twigs in his bed. And during the events of communion under hypnosis, he remembers that one summer, he and other children from the neighborhood were taken in the middle of the night by the visitors to some secret school located somewhere in San Antonio's wild almost basin. He remembers sitting inside a stone circle with the other kids. Uh, we're going to cover this in, in part three uh, because Whitley published an entire book about this called The Secret School. Whitley would go on to become a writer. And his first two novels, The Wolfen, released in 1978, and The Hunger, 1981, were both critical and commercial hits and adapted to the silver screen. Interestingly enough... Some themes presented in these novels will be later re-explored in Communion. Uh, influenced by his bizarre experiences with the visitors, he briefly turned to speculative fiction and wrote three novels dealing with nuclear warfare and the aftermath. A lot of detractors have made the claim that Streber was, like, desperately needing money. But um, he, he wasn't. Um, many thought he was writing communion to cash in on the success of some of the alien abduction literature that was out there. You know, um, by this time you had the Andreessen affair, you had, um, missing time was out there, a compilation books 
featuring abduction accounts. There's probably some other ones that I'm not even taking into consideration here. But like uh, abduction literature was becoming more popular in the 1980s. So many just kind of assumed that he was writing to cash in. But there's really no evidence to support that. Streber had just sold the rights to uh, his book War Day. Uh, released in 1984 for half a million dollars and his novels were doing fairly well at the time so he wasn't on the verge of bankruptcy at all this brings us to december 26 1985 um hey spencer could you set the tone here like get some like creepy vibes going up in here thank you on the evening of December 26, 1985, Streber experienced the first of many abductions in his cabin located near Kingston, New York. After a long day of cross-country skiing and a dinner consisting of Christmas goose, cranberry sauce, and cold sweet potatoes with his family, Streber sets the alarm, the burglar alarm, right after his son, Andrew, goes to bed and makes a tour of the house. He had developed the unusual habit of secretly, uh, meticulously peering in every closet and looking under every bed in the house for hidden intruders with his shotgun. Full on paranoia here. By 10 o'clock, Whitley and his wife, Anne, go to bed for the night and by 11, they are just kind of both asleep. In the middle of the night, he's abruptly awoken by a whooshing, swirling sound coming from the living room downstairs. Quote, this was no random creak, no settling of the house, but a sound as if a large number of people were moving rapidly around the room. He settles back in bed. For some reason, the extreme strangeness of what I was hearing did not rouse me to action. This sort of inappropriate response will be repeated many times throughout his experiences. His eyes go straight to the burglar alarm panel beside the bed. The system is working perfectly. No covered windows or door was open. Nobody had entered, according to the panel's glowing row of lights. All of a sudden, he notices that the double door leading to his bedroom is moving closed. He gets uneasy. His heart starts beating harder. A small figure, approximately three and a half feet tall, wearing a smooth, rounded hat with a sharp rim and two dark holes for eyes, rushes into the room. Whitley blacks out for an unknown period of time, and upon regaining consciousness, he finds himself naked, being carried out of the room. He recalls, There was no physical sensation at all, not of being touched, not of being warm or cold. I could feel myself as a shape in a mass, but not in terms of sensation. It was as if I had become profoundly paralyzed. Although I desperately wanted to move, I could not. And he passes out. He wakes up sitting in a depression in the woods. Two different types of creatures on each side. He describes one wearing a gray tan bodysuit and having two dark eye holes and a round mouth hole. It gives him the impression of a face mask. The other one moves incredibly fast and is doing something to the right side of Streeter's head. He has the distinct feeling that the creature is female. He is lifted in the air above the trees and the next thing he knows, he's in a dirty small circular chamber with a domed grayish tan ceiling with ribs appearing at intervals of about a foot. 
The room looks like something straight out of the show Hoarders. It's messy, ugly. There are clothes thrown on the floor. The air is dry and stuffy, and it smells like cheese. Tiny beings are moving around him at great speed. He is sitting on a bench, completely terrified and incapable of moving. He is presented with a hair-thin, shiny needle mounted on a black surface and told they're going to insert it into his brain. Crazed with terror, he tries to argue with the beings. You'll ruin a beautiful mind! And starts complaining about how filthy the room is. He imagines his family finding him in a vegetative state in the morning and is overtaken by great sadness. The female creature from earlier asks him in a flat Midwestern accent, well, what can we do to help you stop screaming? Streber unexpectedly replies, you could let me smell you. Oh, okay, I could do that. The creature proceeds to put its hand against his face and cradles his head with the other. He describes their odor as follows. Slight scent of cardboard and a faint but distinct organic sourness, like cheese, with a hint of cinnamon. Once they perform the operation, Whitley sinks into a cradle of tiny arms and is taken to another room, which he describes as a small operating theater. There, he is placed on a table in the middle of the room and notices that three tiers of benches are populated with a few huddled figures with round eyes. There are four types of beings that Whitley goes on to describe. Tiny robot-like beings that he saw in his bedroom. Um, short, stocky, blue guys with wide faces, dark gray or dark blue skin, and kind of pug noses. Uh, these are kind of like the kobolds, uh, is what he ends up calling them. Approximately uh, five foot tall, slender beings with big black mesmerizing slanted eyes with an almost vestigial mouth and nose. And the fourth is the, the huddled figures in the theater, uh, similar to the previous ones, but like smaller with round black eyes, like large buttons. So realistically, there's only one figure that resembles this archetype of the gray, and it is the female figure that he is um, going to be interacting with a lot and the one that appears on the cover of the book. Streber cannot re remember if anything happened in the operating theater only that he was carried around in a bunch of different rooms and describes feeling like he was passed along by rows of insects. Then he is shown an enormous foot-long, narrow, triangular-shaped, scaly object with some sort of network of wires on the end, and the little blue guys insert it into his rectum. Quote, It seemed to swarm into me as if, I had, as if it had had a life of its own. Apparently, its purpose was to take samples, possibly of fecal matter. But at the time, I had the impression I was being raped. And for the first time, I felt anger, end quote. Uh, Whitley is kind of the person that the anal probe joke comes from. Now, he wasn't the first to um, experience this type of phenomenon. Uh, that would be Barney Hill. Uh, he described uh, an anal probe in his... Uh, hypnosis sessions but um yeah when you know you think of the joke it comes from whitley streber in this experience which is kind of fucked up dude's describing how he's like being raped and like yeah let's make a joke fucking idiots and i'm a fucking idiot because i used to make that joke 
so shame on me. The beings take his right hand and make an incision. He feels no pain. Abruptly, his memories end, and the next thing he knows, it's morning. He feels uneasy with a very intense memory of seeing a barn owl staring at him through the window sometime during the night. The following day, Streber's personality changes dramatically. He becomes extremely irritable, hypersensitive, easily confused, depressed, and develops a strange fear of toxins in food and water. Physically, he's sore, exhausted, and his rectum hurts. Vague memories of what happened that night slowly come back to him. He thinks he's going mad. He's just impossible to deal with, really. He and his wife fight constantly. She threatens to divorce unless he seeks help. A week after the events, his wife shows him an article in the local newspaper about a series of UFO sightings in the area. And one thing I would like to emphasize emphatically is that during Whitley's uh you know, December 26, 1985 experience. Um, and considering where the cabin is, which is in the Hudson Valley, this is going on at the same time that the Hudson Valley sightings are going on. But those two things are often treated as two separate incidents. But think of them together. Think of them as the same thing. And uh, when you when you think about it and you look into the Hudson Valley wave of sightings, which I will definitely do an episode on after we cover like Whitley Streeter entirely here. There are a lot of people that came forward saying that they kind of had these psychic experiences with these UFOs that they were seeing, that they would respond to their thoughts and that they would like fly towards them or away from them, depending upon how they reacted. So, um, yeah, these are going on at the same time. Uh, according to her, Whitley told her a week before um, that it would happen. He has no recollection of having that conversation, but like he's being, you know, he's got some premonitions going on here. Uh, the article causes him to gloss over a UFO book called Science and the UFOs by Jenny Randalls and astronomer uh, Peter Warrington that his brother sent him for Christmas. So um, it's interesting that his brother sends him like this UFO book for Christmas, but, you know. Uh, the book frightens him. He puts it away uh, five or six pages in. Later, he and his wife start doing more research into UFO sightings in the area and discover that it has been a hot spot for nearly 50 years and that a couple of their friends and neighbors have had sightings of their own. One of their neighbors, uh, the son of a state trooper, claims he saw a huge object covered in lights hovering over the road about five miles from their cabin one late one night in late December. Another one claims to have seen a similar object at a summer camp about 10 miles from the Streber cabin back in 1953. The following month, Streber gives science and the UFOs another go and is astonished to read the description of an experience similar to his. Uh, he's so perturbed, he closes the book um, uh, as if it's like a coiled snake. He sinks deeper into his depression and then finally decides to get in touch with Bud Hopkins, one of the worst moves anybody could ever make. Um, but his name was mentioned in the book, so um, he got in touch with them. Uh, he also, um, Hopkins's uh, place at uh, Greenwich Village uh, is located about 10 minutes from Streber's apartment, so it was kind of convenient for him, too. Hopkins asks him if he had any previous strange experiences prior to the one of December 26th. And he can't think of anything 
but the question triggers something in him. And he remembers an incident that took place on October 4th, where his house burned down, but didn't actually burn down. He remembers an explosion that woke up the whole household, but like nothing more. It's just kind of this like strange liminal experience. He leaves Bud's house happy and on his way home, memories of what happened that night start coming back to him. Strebers, the Strebers have their friends Jacques and Annie over for the weekend at their cabin. Whitley remembers waking up in the middle of the night to a blue light coming from the front yard, being cast on the living room, slowly creeping up to their cathedral ceiling. His mind goes through every possible explanation as to what could be the cause of this, and he thinks the chimney is on fire and immediately falls into a deep sleep. He is awakened again later on by what he describes as the sound of a firecracker popping in his face. Uh, his wife cries out. Their son begins shouting. He opens his eyes and is stunned to see that the entire house is surrounded by a glow. He thinks the house is on fire. He gets up and as soon as he gets out of the room, the glow disappears. In the hall, he meets Jacques and is startled by his presence. He apologizes for his reaction, checks on his son, and goes back to bed. The next morning, little is said about the incident. Annie mentions that Jacques was bothered by the light. Later that week, Streber has a memory of a light flashing before his eyes and some sort of explosion. The next weekend, he recalls another memory. A huge crystal standing on end above the house, glowing with an unearthly blue light. If it had been green, he would have been in Sims. So it goes. He later asks his wife and son if they have any memory of that fateful night. Anne remembers being awakened by a bang, but has no recollection of the glowing light. His son remembers the bang and people telling him that it was okay, that Whitley just threw his shoe at a fly. When asked, what people? His son replies, just a bunch of people. People who are around. Under the advice of Hopkins, Whitley asks his son if he had any unusual dreams. He remembers having a dream about being on a boat with a friend and suddenly finding himself in a different dream, in which little doctors took him outside on the porch and put him on a cot, where he was told repeatedly, we won't hurt. Next, he asks, he asks uh, Jacques and Annie about that night. They remember being awakened by an explosion followed by a bright light so intense they could see the trees and the bushes outside. Annie remembers the scurry of little feet running across Whitley's bedroom upstairs. She thought it was Streber's cats, but they stayed in the city that weekend. In addition, she remembers Streber coming downstairs and telling them not to worry about the light, and, the next morning, that he was visited by people who came down from a spaceship. Whitley has no recollection of saying those words. It turns out that she misremembered the conversation that morning, but that he did mention the giant crystal floating above the house. The last week of October, Streber decides he can't live in New York anymore. He feels it's too dangerous and is terrified of the cabin, so he decides to move to Austin, Texas. One night, while visiting the house, he and Anne chose to buy. He walks out on the deck and feels suddenly terrified as he looks at the canyon and the stars in the evening sky. Quote, 
I felt suddenly and absolutely afraid. It was as if the sky were a living thing and it was watching me, end quote. He changes his mind and decides to stay in New York, and Anne is furious, and rightfully so. Streeper is reluctant to try hypnosis at first. He's read on the subject and knows that patients can be easily let on. He gets in touch with Dr. Donald Klein of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, who is open-minded and interested in the abduction phenomenon, uh, under the recommendation of Bud Hawkins, who was uh, present at some of the sessions and allowed to ask questions at the end. So, like, um, what you're going to find eventually is that uh, Whitley and Bud kind of have a falling out because uh, he doesn't view his experiences in the same way. On March 1st, 1986, Strieber has his first hypnosis session with, with uh, Klein and Hawkins. Under trance, he complains about Jacques being extremely picky about food and unappreciative. He grows incredibly distressed as he recalls an object passing back and forth outside the high window of his living room's cathedral ceiling, casting an odd blue light. He remembers a three-foot-tall hooded figure standing in the corner of the room. It sweeps across the room towards his bed and touches Whitley right in the center of his forehead with what he essentially describes as a silver wand. The wand induces visions of the earth exploding in a fiery red light. He becomes extremely emotional when he is also shown his son playing in a park and his father dying in bed. The creature reassures Whitley telepathically that he won't be hurt. It draws a small needle and strikes it like a match, creating the sound of an explosion that wakes everyone in the house. On March 5th, Strieber is put under hypnosis again. This time, they revisit the events of December 26th. He remembers the strange figure appearing at his bedroom door wearing some weird blocky armor, taking off his pajamas and telling Anne goodbye before being taken outside, where he is laid on a black cot floating above his porch. Aboard the ship now, he recalls the creatures holding his mouth open with their fingers and forcing some um, sort of unknown bitter fruit similar to a pomegranate down his throat. He also recalls that upon seeing the female being, he blurted out, Are you old? To which she replied, Yes, I am old. He is told that he is the chosen one. And he buys none of that shit. He has the impression that she's pulling his leg, that they're messing with him. She then explains the upcoming operation to him. He can't remember what she said, only a loud popping sound and how terrified he was. After arguing with her that they have no right to do this to people, she presents him with the probe, which at the time he thought was uh, her penis, and inserts it into his rectum. Like, it's, it's, it's a very weird moment. Whatever the goal of that experiment was, they hit a bump in the road for Streber that uh, for Streber, you know, just can't get aroused at this point. So they have him, you know, th there's a very weird exchange. And the being says, can you be harder? No, not with you around. What would you like me to be? What would I like you to be? I'd like you to be a dream is what I'd like you to be. I can't be that. Yeah, it's very weird. 
Near the end of the session, he remembers a previous abduction dating all the way back to 1957. Returning from a visit with his family to relatives in Madison, Wisconsin, Whitley, his dad, and his sister took a train. Struber remembers getting violently ill. In a report on communion, Whitley's sister claims she was the one who was ill that day. Consciously, he remembered the train trip and the vomiting and a confused memory of uh, and uh, a, quote, confused memory of my father crouched at the back of an upper berth in our drawing room, his eyes bulging, his lips twisted back from his teeth, end quote. He recalls having a bladder forced down his throat, forcing him to ingest something. He says that this is not the only time he's had this happen. The pattern seems to be that he has fed something, he vomits, and then he has fed something else along with drops to keep him from throwing up. Under hypnosis, he recalls this odd shift into another place in which many soldiers were sleeping on some sort of medical beds. The soldiers were all in fatigues and uh, sprawled as if totally comatose. Young Streber will see the female being. Young Streber asked the being why the soldiers were there, and the being responded that they had picked them up because they were alone, and that they would look over them and return them. Then he asked, what's the point of that? And the being responded, and she sounded like a stuck record, the point of that is, the point of that is, then she stopped as if surprised that she had been caught off guard and simply said, well, at some point, he remembers, quote, I was in a little chair sitting before a featureless gray surface. Something terrifically difficult happened while I was sitting in that chair. After hypnosis, I recalled seeing a landscape with a great hooked object floating in the air, which on closer inspection proved to be a triangle. Then there followed a glut of symbolic material, so intense that even as I write, I can feel how it hurt my whole brain and body to take it all in. I don't remember what this was, what this, what this was, triangles, rushing pyramids, animals leaping through the air, end quote. Over the summer of 87, Schreiber uncovers lost memories of previous interactions with the visitors via hypnosis and intense meditation, including an incident where, as a child, he was stalked by Mr. Peanut at the San Antonio Battle of the Flowers Parade, which he believes was a screen memory concealing something far more sinister. He recalls his first missing time experience. In 1967, while attending the University of Texas. One day, while sitting on the couch eating a TV dinner, he is astonished to find out that his dinner seems to have teleported from his lap to the coffee table in front of him and gone cold. He gets up to reheat the food, sets the timer for 15 minutes, and realizes two hours have gone by. He turns back to check the temperature setting, and the sun is going down now. His dinner is cold again. He has lost approximately 12 hours. In a panic, thinking he is having blackouts, he decides to make a phone call for help. It's now daytime. As he moves towards the phone, the sky is black and the clock says it's midnight. Thirsty and shaking with fear, he gets a glass of water from the kitchen. His watch says it's 4.15. He rushes out of the apartment and is now pre-dawn. 
He hits an all-night restaurant and has a huge breakfast and six glasses of orange juice. He's lost a grand total of 24 hours. A couple of weeks later, he recalls being at two different locations simultaneously. While lying in bed at his grandmother's house one night, he is transported back in time in Austin. While backing out of the apartment house parking lot, he remembers a demon-looking creature with a narrow face and black slanted eyes peering in the window. With its face almost touching the glass, telling him in a high squeaky voice that they can't leave the car in the middle of the street. Struggling to keep driving away, while simultaneously trying to get out of bed, he sees his grandmother reading in her bed across the hall, and it finally stops. Weeks later, obsessed with the notion of getting away, he does a bunch of odd jobs and saves enough money to go to Europe. After spending a few months in London, where he took uh, film history classes, he eventually leaves London and meets a young woman on a train to Italy. The two just start traveling together. After leaving her in Rome, where he got lost in uh, catacombs under the Vatican uh, and saw a quote-unquote dried owl in his, uh, in his room, he spends six weeks in Florence but has little to no memories of the place, as if he were never there. Upon his return to London, which he has no recollection of how he got there, he finds out that he has been gone for so long that management gave his room to another student. He remembers an odd experience that took place in the 70s, where, while staying at his parents, he was awakened by a loud noise. When he got up to get a glass of water, he saw a small dark hooded figure holding a red light storm out of his old bedroom and head downstairs. So, like, a lot of what you get with these hypnosis sessions are, like, you know, just random stray incidents that Whitley has. There's, like, a lot of them. So we're, we're just kind of, you know, going through them all. And the way that they're presented in uh, communion. In April 1977, while he and Anne were sitting in the living room uh, of their tiny two-bedroom uh, apartment in Manhattan, a voice spoke to him through the stereo. Quote, the voice was entirely clear, not like some sort of garbled message sometimes picked up from a passing taxi's radio or ham operator. Never before had it happened again, and it didn't happen again. I do not remember the conversation, except the last words. I know something else about you. That was the end. I was left dangling, end quote. He calls the Federal Communication Commission and is told that while stereos do sometimes pick up ham radios and taxi and police radios, it is impossible to have a conversation through one. Yeah, seems pretty obvious that you wouldn't have one. A few weeks later, they moved to Connecticut for about a year after a series of menacing phone calls. One night, Whitley is awakened by the strange impression that there are people pouring through the windows of their isolated house. Weeks later, they decide to move back to New York after Whitley is awakened in the middle of the night by horrible screams coming from outside. A year later, Whitley is again awakened in the middle of the night but this time by his son's crying. He rushes to his bedroom and recalls seeing a dark figure dashing towards the sliding door that led to their third, uh, their 33rd floor balcony. As he grabs his baby, 
A siphon of seltzer explodes in the pantry, leaving beads of glass all over the floor. In 1981, the Strebers all experienced being poked in the stomach in the middle of the night by a, quote, short white thing. Whitley chased it down the hall one night, but it disappeared. A week later, while attending a wedding reception with Anne, Whitley calls the babysitter to check on Andrew and immediately rushes home when her mother picks up picks up the phone, tells her, tells him her daughter got startled by a quote, a child wearing a sheet peering into the kitchen from the fire escape while cooking dinner. In March, Strieber remembers a bizarre incident that took place in the fall of 1984. Driving home from the grocery store, he spotted a fog bank. Intrigued, he gets off the highway and onto a dirt road to get a better look at it. In the fog, he recalls two people in dark blue uniforms leaning in the windows. The next thing he remembers, uh, being back on the highway, returning home. He had dismissed the incident until recently when he decided to go on that dirt road again. To his dismay, the road was gone. There was no sign of that dirt road ever having been there in the first place. Intrigued by the story, because it sounded like a typical abduction, Hopkins made Streber go under hypnosis to revisit the incident because that's what Bud Hopkins fucking does. Streber recalls driving way past the grocery store. Going down the highway towards the interchange, he keeps thinking there's something above the car. Getting progressively more nervous, he misses the turnoff. He wants to turn around and go back, but can't. There's no one on the road except for a white truck with a black windshield coming towards him. Whitley gets the feeling that there's something off about that truck. He can't quite put his finger on it. The next thing he knows, he's sitting on the floor with his legs spread apart in some long gray room. He feels like he got turned inside out. His stomach feels terrible. He's got the feeling he's being stared at. Quote, Somewhere, there's someone watching me with great big eyes. Big black eyes just watching me. One second, I think they're mean. The second second, I don't know what to make of it. I'm not scared, I'm just amazed. I just turned the corner, and all of a sudden, I was in Arabia or something. End quote. There's a lot of movement around him. He sees a, a row of little people standing in silence. A tall, bug-like, gangly creature, which turns out to be the same female being from previous abductions, sits in front of him and stares into his eyes. She puts her hand out under Whitley's shirt, right up against the right side of his chest. He remembers being shown abstract forms being put together. Triangles, circles, and things. Something similar to, like, Tetris therapy. He then remembers being told, quote, Get out of here. We don't want you here. By two very rude creatures. Next thing he remembers is driving home. Klein no longer wishes to continue hypnosis Whitley, with Whitley after this session. So the following day, Streeper finds himself capable of viewing the female being in his head as if she were a 3D model, which allows him to, to describe it to Hopkins and artist Ted Seth Jacobs. Uh, 
Ted Seth Jacobs is the artist who painted the uh, cover for Communion and um, does so in like great detail. Like Whitley recalls it so clearly that uh, he's able to reproduce it rather easily. Strange events start occurring in the following weeks. Streeper recalls waking up paralyzed in the middle of the night, unable to open his eyes with the impression that something was inserted far up his left nostril. When he tried to struggle, he heard a pop between his eyes, like the sound of an apple being crunched. The following week, he and his wife start experiencing episodes of nasal bleeding and little knots in their nostrils. He gets his nose examined by a doctor and is diagnosed with a scratch to the nasal mucosa. He gets a letter from Dr. Klein in which he is informed that many of his symptoms are consistent with an abnormality in the temporal lobe. He gets tested by two neurologists. Uh, his results come back positive. His temporal lobe functions are perfectly normal. On February 7th, he spends an awful night in his apartment. He can feel the visitor's presence. He can smell them. He experiences missing time while reading in bed. He's shocked to discover that four hours of his life are just completely gone and that he's no longer wearing his pajamas. The next morning, he finds two triangular-shaped marks on his forearm. March 15th, 1984. Streber is awakened in the middle of the night by a familiar jab on the shoulder to the sight of three stocky dwarf-like creatures standing beside his bed. He tries to reach for the lamp on his bedside table, but is overtaken by a strange sensation. Quote, I can only describe the sensation I felt when I tried to move. as like pushing my arm through electrified tar, end quote. He eventually reaches the switch, but nothing happens when he clicks it. The electricity is off. Beside his table, er, beside his bed, Two feet from his face stands a gray with big, black, round eyes like buttons. It's wearing a poor cardboard imitation of a blue double-breasted suit complete with a triangle handkerchief sticking out of the pocket. Completely terrified, he tries to wake up Anne, but can't even open his mouth. Quote, the sense of their presence in the room was so unimaginably powerful and so strange, end quote. He feels like this is some kind of test that he needs to attempt uh, communicating with them in a non-threatening manner. So he smiles at them. Instantly, everything changes. The creatures dash away with a whoosh, and Whitley goes right back to sleep almost instantly. In 1985, in an interview for Faces of Fear, a book collecting interviews with various horror writers, Strieber claims he was on campus uh, during the Whitman Massacre. Quote, On August 1st, 1966, after stabbing his mother and his wife to death the previous night, Charles Whitman, a Marine veteran, took rifles and other weapons to the observation deck atop the main building tower at the University of Texas at Austin, and then opened fire indiscriminately on people on the surrounding campus and streets. Over the next 96 minutes... He shot and killed 15 people, including an unborn child, and injured 31 other people. The incident ended when two policemen and a civilian reached Whitman and fatally shot him. 
At the time, the attack was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history. He recalls, quote, I had just had a Coke. I was walking from the student union to the academic center, which was an open shelf library near the tower, when I heard a sharp bang that echoed off the university co-op across the street behind me. And the reason I am alive today is that I didn't turn around. I thought it was coming from the tower. Maybe I saw some movement out of the corner of my eye. All the people in front of me thought the sound came from the co-op in front of us, not the tower behind. The next thing I saw was a little boy on a bicycle coming toward me. His head just exploded. I didn't hear that one. I knew then that it was coming from the tower. The other people all took cover and that shielded them from the co-op, but left them exposed to the tower. They were all killed, shot. I ran a little retaining the I ran to a little retaining wall about three feet high, which was near that base uh, of the tower building, about twenty yards from it, and I laid down there. He shot two girls in the stomach right behind me, thirty feet away from me, and they were lying there in the grass, screaming, begging, pleading for help, trying to crawl along. One girl's legs wouldn't work. The other one was vomiting pieces of herself out of her mouth. And I could smell the blood and the odor of their stomachs. What was in their stomachs and their colons. The smell was horrible coming out of those poor kids. Two young co-eds. And he did that to get me and this other guy who was hiding behind the embankment to come out. I stayed there. I was sick with dread watching them die. Knowing that the gun was waiting. And the other guy suddenly went out and tried to pull one of them away and got shot in the head and killed. Whitman just shot the top of his head off. I stayed right there. I stayed right where I was for a long, long time. Until I saw them with my own eyes bringing Whitman's body out. The ambulance men came up to me and said, You can come out now. He's dead. But I would not move until I saw him. End quote. Um, Whitby's account of the events is, uh, very, very, very inaccurate. Uh, for example, there was no little boy on a bicycle killed that day. Uh, the youngest victim, Mark Gabor, was 16. In an interview with Ed Conroy, Mary Strieber, Whitley's mom, confirms that Whitley was in Austin that day, but not on campus. He will later claim that the whole thing was a screen memory implanted by the visitors and eventually uh, retract that statement and decide that, yeah, he was on campus that day, despite every single piece of evidence pointing to the contrary. So that's yeah, that's one of the most controversial aspects of uh, communion. He, he wasn't there. He definitely wasn't there. Streber submits early versions of the manuscript to Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, and Jerome Clark, uh, which ultimately leads to a rift between Whitley and Bud. Uh, Hopkins recalls, quote, When I finally saw the manuscript, I was quite horrified, and I thought it was unpublishable. I was very upset, and it had a lot to do, and it had a lot to do making suggestions on how to handle things, what to leave out in general sort of strategic decisions. See, one has to realize one very basic thing. He, Streber, has little experience as a nonfiction writer. His sort of anything-goes attitude that's a product of a horror writer and very different. It is interesting, too, that many, 
many interviewers would ask me, can he be trusted because of the quality of his writing, which has this sort of, as they point out, it was a dark and stormy night quality, a sort of setup for the horror thing, end quote. Um, fucking Bud Hawkins takes shots at people like so weirdly in, in shit. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, Hopkins is concerned by the believability of Streber's initial text, which he feels would not be accepted by readers. He continues, um, he said he was led off his airplane by his penis, by these little naked things. It was the kind of thing where I said, Whitley, he has no sense as to what would go down with a reader and what wouldn't. I mean, writing fiction is one thing, but there are other rules. He got practically line-by-line -line criticism from David Jacobs and Jerome Clark, made a lot of suggestions. And I certainly made a lot of suggestions. And there were many, many hundreds of changes that the editors made to the book. So it was finally whipped into shape, thanks, a lot, uh, thanks to a lot of other minds. But at the time, it was, a bizarre beyond, it was bizarre beyond belief. A lot of it was very, very good, but a lot of it was extremely bizarre, end quote. So, like, th this kind of, you know, feeds into um, Bud's view of how the phenomenon should be. If it's too bizarre, it's not believable. If it's too bizarre, it doesn't fit into his shit. So, uh, Streeper admits to, ha to have left out some of his experiences from uh, the, the content and communion, but insists he was faithful to what he describes um, as a high level of strangeness of his experiences. Hopkins' insistence upon having a major impact on the style of his book and that Whitley did not know how to write nonfiction did not sit well with Streeper. His revenge will be terrible. He tells Edward Conroy, quote, He, Hopkins, and Jacobs are censoring the experiences of people with visitor experiences in order to fit them into a theory they have about extraterrestrials. If some experiences in people's lives don't fit their theories, they just exclude them. In my books, I have maintained an account of the experiences which is very close to how strange and bizarre they really are. This is why my books have gotten such a tremendous response, while Intruders was a failure. End quote. Uh, yeah, Whitley's um, not making friends. Oh, there's one story that um, I forgot to mention here, and that uh, the naming of the book Communion. So one night after, you know, Whitley's kind of, you know, come to terms with the visitors and they're kind of, you know, he's looking, um, he's talking about the book and, um, uh, at one point he asks for, um, you know, confirmation that they're real and stuff and they appear in his bedroom and everything seems fine after that. But he's sitting talking with Anne one night and Anne is actually asleep and he's talking about what he wants to call the book. And the aliens pipe in through Anne and say, eh, it should be called communion because it shouldn't be scary. It's a communion. So that's how communion came to be. Hopkins proposes to Streber that their publisher could make 
history by publishing two books in one ad, uh, but is surprised and infuriated to suddenly hear from his publisher that Streber had written a letter suggesting that it would be much better for the reception of Intruders if its release were delayed by several months. Hopkins refers to that letter as a betrayal by Streber of a trust he had carefully developed. He refers to that day as his own Pearl Harbor Day. Fucking A. Uh, Streber explains that his motive in attempting their publisher to not publish Intruders as planned was to save it from being overwhelmed by what he saw was the imminent bestseller status of communion. Streber even wrote a letter to the publisher offering a quotation that could be used on the dust jacket. Hopkins refused. Feeling he cannot be trusted, Hopkins terminates his relationship with Streber. Uh, and the two... Uh, never corresponded again, I don't think. Hopkins counterattacks and um, sends a document around to people in the UFO community detailing his observations about Whitley. Essentially a warning about working with him. Quote, Streber is both mentally and emotionally unstable and therefore not to be trusted. Hopkins continues, I wish that Whitley Streber would just go away. I would just like to have him out of my life. Despite his issues with Streber, Hopkins has no doubt that Whitley had experiences with alien beings. Streber's publisher fears his account of bizarre experiences with the visitors is going to be a disaster, so they go their separate ways. The manuscript for Communion finds its way to the desk of uh, James Landis, publisher of Companies Beach and Tree Books. Landis takes it home, reads a couple of pages, and goes to work the next day. Upon returning home, he finds the entire manuscript spread all over his bedroom. Quote, Not a single page was next to a page that belonged to it. As I remember, it took two and a half hours to put the manuscript back together. It was probably the wind. End quote. Whitley gets a million dollar advance. Communion hits shelves on February 27th. 1988 and becomes a massive hit. Two million copies are sold and the book reaches the number one spot of the New York Times bestseller list nonfiction. The cover strikes fear in the heart and soul of those foolish enough to lay eyes upon it and soon after everyone and their dog get abduction fever. Streber gets hundreds of letters a week from people who had similar experiences. The visitors themselves get interested. According to Bruce Lee, not that Bruce Lee, sadly, former Washington journalist for Newsweek, then editor for Morrow, recalls a strange encounter in an uptown New York bookstore. And we've talked about this experience before on our um, uh, Alien Incognito episode with AP Strange. Lee had a couple of books out at the time, so he and his wife went in to see if they were on display. He noticed a strange couple walking in and heading straight to the communion rack. Quote, they were very short. My mother was five foot one. I'm six foot four. So I noticed these things. And they were all wrapped up. Long scarves, wool hats that you pulled down. And they picked up a copy of the book. And they started thumbing through it. It was obvious that they were speed reading it. The odd couple snickered and giggled as they flipped through the pages. Oh, he's got this wrong. He's got that wrong. Lee, 
curious to see what their problem was with the book, introduced himself. Quote, I think it was the woman that looked up. She was wearing those big sunglasses that the girls keep up in their hair. And they, and they really sort of hide the face. But by God, behind those dark glasses, there was a goddamn big pair of eyes. And I mean to say it was a big pair of eyes. And they were shaped sort of like almonds, end quote. Lee was overtaken with the strange feeling that he was not wanted around, like he was in the presence of mad dogs. He bid farewell to the odd couple, grabbed his wife, and exited the bookstore, shaking. They sounded Upper East Side Jewish, he recalls. Let us end this episode with a bit of controversy. Um, with Bud Hopkins, we've already gotten some, but uh, there's a little bit of controversy with Jenny Randall's co-author of Science and the UFOs. Um, she insinuates in a radio interview that Strieber just kind of plagiarized parts of her book, uh, but she put a quote from Communion on the dust jacket of her new book, UFO Conspiracy, about how he read science and the UFOs uh, without uh, his permission. Whitley strikes back and accuses Randalls of being in the UFO business for money and using and abusing people. And she sends him an apology letter. The two meet at a MUFON conference in Washington and just kind of bury the hatchet. Streeper compliments science and the UFOs and says he would, would have been happy to endorse it if, she had, if he had been asked. He even offered to write a foreword to her next book. Randall's agrees to remove the quote from future editions. Yet, Streeper still sends her legal letters stating he's going to take action for the use of that cover quote. Um, Streeper then takes on MUFON and tells people who have had experiences to not work with them and avoid, like, ufologists. And then he takes on the final boss, Jerome Clark of Fate magazine. Clark is highly critical of Streber. He claims Whitley promised to make the $5,000 donation to QFOS, but reneged on the promise. And Streber goes for the jugular. Quote, he's disenchanted because I give the fund for UFO research money, but not his organization, QFOS. I don't give them money because I don't think they are very good. Their handling of the Gulf Breeze matter, sending it out on a national mailing, uh, declaring it a hoax, is case in point. In my opinion, they did this because they were just jealous of the fact that Buffon got hold of the case first. End quote. Yes, Whitley did not want to donate to QFOS because they did not believe Ed Walters and his bullshit. Um, that's kind of hilarious to me, but, you know. Uh, Whitley just, uh, you know, doing Whitley shit. On the next episode, we will cover material from the next two books, Transformation, The Breakthrough, and Breakthrough, The Next Step, published in 1988 and 1995, respectively. Uh, first and foremost, special thank you to Jeff Demers for putting in all the research and writing on this series. He wrote this whole damn thing. Um, he stepped up and, like, he's, he's gone mad, folks. He, he's, he has gone mad. But he put in all the research on this Streber series and, uh, you know, his mind is gone, but uh, he's done us a good service. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch or find the link to our Patreon page. 
head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. You can find all of that in a fantastic digital resource page. So, you know, go look at all those UFO journals and stuff. That's what I do. Uh, I have a P.O. Box if you, for some reason, want to send me stuff. So it's uh, P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. Uh, you can check out the webcomic that I write with my buddy Todd Purse on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and over on Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. Uh, we also release high-res images on uh, both of our Patreon pages. So um, if you are interested in that, uh, those are the places that you can find them. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the band behind the curtain for this show. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or peeking out from behind the door in the middle of the night. In gray, we trust. Yeah.